Major changes to Australia's industrial relations laws have now passed federal parliament. Making it easier for unions to negotiate deals that cover multiple businesses that are similar, such as childcare and aged care. Former Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been censured by the House of Representatives for secretly appointing himself to five portfolios during the pandemic. I acknowledge that the non-disclosure of arrangements has caused unintentional offence and extend an apology to those who were offended. So the National Party has made a position that we will not support the voice. There's absolutely a lack of detail. Go to the National Indigenous Australian Agency, download the report on the voice and look at pages 16 to 17. That is the detail. Well, it's obviously Jacinta Price's entry into the parliament that has turned everything around. But it is also this, this leader, little proud, little pride. Frustration boiling over in Guangzhou. COVID zero in China is spilling over to some popular revolt in many cities. It's on for Matthew Lecky. Matthew Lecky cuts back inside. One way to the other. And he scores for Australia. Matthew Lecky embraces the moment for the Socceroos. The rap. Well, when you hear it like that, it has been quite a week. Quite a week for the green and gold. And in the nation's capital, the Albanese government had a few significant wins this week. The biggest changes to workplace laws in two decades of now past federal parliament. Joining me to wrap up the week in news is journalist and presenter Janine Perrett and the ACTU's media strategist and political advisor, Francis Leach. Pleasure to have you both. Welcome aboard. Thank you, Andy. Andy. Good to be here. Let's, uh, before we get into some of the meat on the bones of this week, uh, let's, well, I mean, it's been announced today, really, that the charge against former Liberal Party staffer Bruce Learman for the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins will be dropped. Janine, I want to ask you this. As an occasional presenter of Media Watch, I can't help but think journalism students are going to be studying this case for years and years to come as an example of what not to do. Do you agree? Yes, I do, actually. I think uh, as somebody who's been around for decades, I've been quite surprised by some of the coverage that we forget this was a a court case in the end, that there were people involved. I think no matter how well-intentioned um, some people in the media were, we have to remember that a pursuit of a story should not override um, the fundamentals of how we report such sensitive cases. And uh, yeah, I think there's a wake-up call for all of us in this. It's not the outcome anybody wanted. It would have been much better if the trial had been completed. It was the misconduct of a juror, as we know, that stopped it. So whether it had been guilty, not guilty, or a hung jury, it should have been allowed to be completed. That will never happen now. But the coverage itself is something we need to look at over time of uh, just how it was covered compared to how such sensitive trials are usually covered. Yeah, and of course, it has to be acknowledged that this whole saga has been really damaging for both parties. When you think about the legal costs, the trauma, uh, yeah, it's just astounding, really. Uh, let's move on, though, though, to the other news of the week. Francis, this week, Scott Morrison was formally censured for secretly appointing himself to five ministerial portfolios. Uh, Labor didn't get any help from the opposition. Just one coalition MP crossed the floor, Bridget Archer, as she's done in the past. Why didn't we see more MPs cross the floor when it was their own jobs being secretly taken by Scott Morrison? 
Landy, I, I have to declare that I do work for a Labor senator as well. So I, I'm not, um, I guess, unbiased or, uh, in my assessment here. But it, it was clear from the outset that the, uh, the Liberal Party had decided that it was going to be in lockstep behind its leader to not allow its history of the Morrison government to be sullied in the way uh, that inevitably, inevitably was by this historic censure motion, which uh, is the first time we've ever seen a Prime Minister subject to that and seeing it passed through the Parliament. Um, it was an extraordinary day, Andy, um, to see uh, Scott Morrison stand up in the Parliament uh, to offer his own defence. Yeah, what did you think of that? What, what, did you think he made any points that landed? I mean, there was obviously a very noisy uh, room at that point. Well, I think, you know, look, he, made, he offered a, a, a robust defence of his conduct of the pandemic. And certainly there were, you know, the pandemic and the pandemic management will be studied and discussed and, and dissected for generations to come. It is in the history books now. And there's certainly elements to his handling of the pandemic, uh, particularly at the beginning, which were exemplary. But, uh, you know, onwards from that, he did not address the substantive issue whatsoever in his uh, his his position in the parliament this week, other than to say, if someone was a, the uh, the ultimate modern apology, if someone was offended by my behaviour, oh, then I apologise. And the other element, which was gobsmacking, was his suggestion: well, if you'd only asked me about whether I'd taken on these extra five portfolios, I would have told you. So, in a sense, he was saying it's our fault for not knowing that he was holding these secret portfolios, the same very portfolios that his his ministers didn't understand. And if anyone gets a chance to look at Nikki Sabah's new book, uh, the fact that they didn't vote for it in Parliament uh, was, uh, was you know, at odds with the, the incandescent anger and rage in the pages of that new book in relation to Scott Morrison's conduct. Uh, where there's some deep wounds within the Liberal Party uh, uh, because the member for Cook behaved in the way that he did. And it was clear from that uh, that, uh, you know, he was very much interested in the exercise of power, but he was never interested in protecting the institutions that govern power. And he was asked, I recall he was asked by Ben Fordham on a Sydney radio station about whether or not he occupied the resources ministry and he's, and, he, and at that time he already had sworn himself in secretly and his answer was, Keith Pitt's a great guy. So, I mean, the, the idea that he wasn't asked is a pretty preposterous one. Janine, I, I couldn't help notice that a number of coalition MPs who went over to the backbench to pat Scott Morrison on the shoulder during Wednesday's sitting, um, well, journalist Hugh Rimmington, also a good friend of RN Drive, posted a photo of this alongside an image of a very lonely-looking Julia Banks sitting on the backbench in 2018 with MPs' uh, backs turned sort of toward, uh, towards her after she was uh, told Parliament uh, that she, when she told Parliament she was quitting the Liberal Party and moving to the crossbench. This is a pretty interesting juxtaposition here, Janine. Do you think it's a fair one? Um, yes, when it came to the crunch in the Parliament, voting one way is one thing, but the um, the support of him, the going over and slapping him on the back, I should note Peter Dutton wasn't uh, one of them, which was interesting. Obviously, uh, that was not a smart political move, might have been personal too. But the fact is, it was a terrible look and there was nothing that Scott Morrison said in that faux apology that he hadn't said before. It didn't justify it. And as for journalists asking him about it, well, what a pity a political correspondent didn't know about it beforehand. Oh, that's right, they did. <laughs> they kept it for a book. 
Let's move on to IR laws, Janine. Uh, politicians will be celebrating that they don't have to return to Parliament tomorrow like it was planned. They don't need that day in Parliament because Labor's industrial relations laws passed. Are you surprised how quickly they did get this legislation through? Yes, I am. I think it was a great triumph for the government. Um, and thanks to David Pocock, of course, who, who was instrumental in reaching an agreement last week. I mean, this was a big bill put through very quickly. I mean, it was interesting that someone like um, Teal Independent Allegra Spender, she actually voted against it. She said it was too complex, it was too rushed, was an interesting reaction. There'd been so much of that beforehand and so um, so many constituencies, the small business group, the business groups who were trying and lobbying hard against it. To get this agreement, to get it through, um, is very important. It shows the honeymoon period still continues for this government. They're being very effective to get it through. Um, it mightn't be everything they want, but they were prepared to get enough through that it was worth it. And that shows a very pragmatic, practical and effective government still at this stage. And Francis, you've been very good at declaring your conflicts of interest. Uh, we should say here that you were there during the negotiations for the passage of this bill. Uh, you were an advisor to Labor, Senator Anne Urquhart. Uh, we didn't see a great deal of campaigning by the unions or business lobby groups, publicly at least. Uh, but just how intense has it been behind closed doors on this uh, negotiation? Well, I, I'm not going to speak on behalf of the ACTU here or Sally McManus or Michelle O'Neill, but I will say in their defence, they've campaigned and the union movement has campaigned tirelessly for years on these particular issues and to bring this to the table and to make sure that it became more. So this is a huge win for working Australians and union members who have for the better part of a decade seen enterprise bargaining basically die on the slab. And it has been allowed to wither on the vine by a government that wasn't interested, as we knew from Matthias, Matthias Coleman's infamous comments about uh, low wages being a design feature of uh, the, the economy. They weren't interested in it working in a way that actually uh, increased wages for workers. So that is a win for the union movement. But what did happen here, which is a bit like Janine said, was there were some very quiet and intense discussions going on. Uh, the union movement was in Canberra right throughout the week uh, talking to David Pocock and the crossbenchers, they always do, and Senator Pocock uh, handled these negotiations in the spirit of uh, good faith and, uh, and you know, there was a lot of hard work done to get this across the line by uh, the, uh, the Labor Party and the crossbench and the result is that workers for the first time in over a decade have a suite of industrial relations laws that acknowledge that they are important stakeholders in the economy, that they, they matter, that their, their, uh, their well-being and their, uh, uh, their wages and conditions are important, not a sideshow. And it's a really big day for the union movement and for Australian workers and, uh, you know, I was there last night when the bill went through and uh, personally felt very proud to see it go through the way that it did. If you just tuned in, you're getting some sharp analysis of the week in news and politics with journalist and presenter Janine Perrett and the ACT's media strategist and political advisor Francis Leach here on RN Drive with Andy Park. Now, Janine, the Nats came out early uh, to announce a no position against an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Uh, some call it uh, premature when some of the details weren't exactly clear. Some have used that as a criticism of the Yes campaign. So why now? And uh, what is there to, to be gained in doing so, so quote-unquote prematurely? I find it very hard to understand what's going on in the minds of the national, the minds of the nationals to do this this early. Their argument being that uh, there's not enough detail, which we saw um, in your quote earlier, Ken Wyatt, um, 
came out and said, well, just read the statement, you can see it. It seems, I don't know if they just want to keep the members on side, whether they're trying to lead the um, the no campaign, because we've seen in recent polls that the yes, um, people supporting yes, uh, the numbers are growing, whether they want to be at the forefront of it, but they seem to have rushed it because there's also been a couple of nationals who've come out, particularly I think one in the West Australian Nats has said, look, this is too quick, we, we're not sure on this, we weren't consulted. So I think you will see some movement on it. And I think it's it's still far too early. We don't have the referendum yet. We don't know what's there. They've staked a position. It's probably not surprising that they're they're taking this attitude. I don't know what they've got to gain from it. But, you know, as I say, it's the National Party. Who would know what's in their mind? It has to have something to do with forcing uh, bipartisanship from the Liberals, because certainly any constitutional change in this country can only really happen when it is uh, bipartisan. We've seen history as an example of that. I think it was the former, uh, the, the, the current Northern Territory country Liberal Party Senator Jacinda Price, a Walpiri woman, who argued that the Nats have taken this position because the voice lacks detail, as uh, Janine just said. But, uh, you know, Ken White says it's out there in the public domain. You just have to look at it. I mean, where uh, this, I suppose, is where referendums fail, really, Francis, creating confusion about the detail. Well, it certainly did in 1999, uh, Andy and Janine, that's for sure. And that's the lesson learnt from the John Howard-led uh, Republican referendum, which was built around, it was a, a catch-and-kill exercise from the former Prime Minister, masterfully handled by a master, a master politician. He wanted to be the gamekeeper when it came to uh, shepherding a referendum through on the Republic, and he wanted it or hoped it would fail. And the way that that was uh, achieved was by putting a specific question on on the on the actual structure or model of the uh, of the republic, rather than the general question, and that's where the division was found, and that's where it was lost, and that's the issue here as well. This is an issue of the heart, and this is the broad theme which I think most Australians will feel in their gut is the important element here, and that is on uh, I guess all of us to talk to if you are a supporter of the voice, and I certainly am, one hundred percent wholeheartedly, to talk to our friends and families in our communities about why it's important history of it and the consequence of doing it and also, and I saw Michelle Grattan's piece today in the conversation, the consequence of it failing, what it means for our country if we cannot do this. I don't even, I can't even imagine what that means for the future welfare of Indigenous Australians. So it's a really big year coming up and there's no guarantees. And as you said, Andy, it does take, you know, a majority of votes in a majority of states and inevitably a bipartisan position on these referendums for them to succeed. So we've all, if we are supporting of the voice, and I'm not presuming everybody is, but those that are, we've all got work to do. We've all got a stake in this. We cannot be, you cannot be passive in this. If you believe in it, you need to be part of the change. And so, you know, next year is going to be a really big moment for those Australians who want to see that change. Yeah, on a slightly lighter note and perhaps like a Gruen transfer kind of note, I can't wait to see the campaigns, what songs they'll use, how compelling the arguments will be. That's the sort of substance that I think then we can really engage in some of this debate. We well, do... We do Sorry, Jane. I was just going to say, I think the Johnny Farnham, every time I hear the there voice go. now, I'm Thank sure you. it's got to be there. But, but of course, Janine, the next line is try and understand it. So I don't know whose campaign <laughs> that falls into and whether John Farnham's going to let anyone use his copyright. Do, do, you, do you think it's right that the federal government has said no, that they won't fund either the yes or no campaign, Janine? I, I think that is probably a smart 
a smart decision. I mean, if they fund one side, that would just give the other side um, some arguments, some leverage to say, look, this isn't fair. I mean, you either fund both sides or you fund neither. So it's going to be interesting and it gets to what Francis says about people who feel passionately will have to then get out and support it. Let's move on to, well, the big match this weekend. Janine, let me ask you this controversial question. If we win against Argentina, should there be a public holiday? Oh, for course not. Because <laughs> I know Francis is... anything so ridiculous in my life. Can we, just, can we just calm down here? We're in the top 16. If we get there, it's the top eight. Then you've got the top four. Then you have the final where there's two. If we win and we're number one, then we can talk about a public holiday. But this really is getting a bit carried away. Much as I don't say it's a wonderful achievement they've done, a public holiday is really a step too far at this early stage. Francis, do you think public holiday for every match? I think you're going to prosecute a different <laughs> argument here, I believe. <laughs> Maybe not a public holiday, but if we could just shift the time, uh, the clock just for a couple of hours so we can all get a little bit of sleep, it would be nice. It's been, wow, what a morning that was. Uh, I you know, the whole nation was up at between 2 and 4 a.m. with its heart rate uh, over, you know, over in the red watching that game. Where were you? And, uh, were you at home or yeah. at one of the public venues? No, I was in in bed with my iPad watching and, um, you know, just absolutely agog at what was an extraordinary performance. I've been lucky enough, Andy, Janine, to have been at the last five World Cups. So I, I know that how special those uh, match days are and those moments when Australia wins and they've, they've been few and far between. Uh, they're really special and that was a brilliant performance. And to get the opportunity to play against Lionel Messi and Argentina in a round of 16 game, this team, which is a, a team of no names and, and players who's been who are playing in the lower reaches of the uh, the uh, English Premier League or the English leagues or the Scottish leagues and, and on in Europe, it's a superb team performance built to, uh, by a coach who knows what he's doing and uh, I, I can't wait for Sunday morning. I'll be so proud of them uh, when they get out there and play against Argentina and uh, let's hope they, they give a good account of themselves. It is interesting though, Janine, that we seem in this country to have forgotten about all the ugly stuff, the human rights issues, the treatment of uh, LGBTIQ plus people, the lack of beer even. Uh, do you think if we get knocked out, we'll return to talking about those issues? I do hope so, because I think not everybody has forgotten it. And I think around the world, there's been a lot of coverage. It continues to be an issue. Um, yes, we've all got carried away with our success. But of course, we shouldn't forget that this is a very, yeah. very tainted World Cup. Can I just say on that, though, as someone who has stayed away from the World Cup as uh, as a decision not to go because of its labour rights issues, that I'm so very proud of the Socceroos who identified themselves as workers and as unionists and through the Professional Footballers Association were the first team to uh, put their voice to uh, support for migrant workers and reform in that country and for LGBTQI rights in Qatar as well. So it's not forgotten and we can separate these issues and we can celebrate the football without forgetting about the bigger picture issue. And this team is one to be proud of on both counts. And Francis, you might be under the doona with your iPad for the Argentina match, but have the New South Wales and South Australian premiers done the right thing by setting up these live sites? What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think people want to be together when they watch major sporting events and, and their special moments. And so, um, why deny them that opportunity? If it's if it's conducted in a safe way, which I'm sure it will be, uh, you know, once every four years, I'll get an opportunity. And who, this is a big moment in Australian sports. So bring people together and and let them enjoy the moment well, with one another. 
Well, it's going to be a big, big night for a lot of Socceroos fans. Uh, Duna or no Duna, it's going to be <laughs> certainly very, very exciting. Uh, thanks so much for your time. It's been great to have you on my last show for the year, journalist and presenter Janine Perrett and the ACTU's media strategist and political advisor, Francis Leach. Have a lovely weekend. Thank you so much. Thank have you, Have a great Andy. break, Andy. You're with Andy Park. This is RN Drive. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.